Would you like to hear a scary story? It's a quiet evening as you finish up your work in the church office. A little too quiet, you think. A quiet that's suspicious, expectant, like the silence of a slowly stretching rubber band anticipating an inevitable snap. Oh, um, come in. Oh, hello, chair of deacons. Hi, Pastor. I hope you're not busy. I was just riding by, so I thought I'd drop in. Oh, well, that's great. I'm not busy at all. Which is the truth, not because you're above little white lies, but because it's 4.58 p.m. on a Friday. Oh, well, good. I just wanted to stop by and say hello for a second. <laughs> Hope things are going well with you and your family. Such the chair's voice fades as your mind drifts to consider the possible promptings for this unexpected conference. Did you fail to visit someone's fourth cousin after their surgery? Perhaps insult an elder by not sampling her casserole at the potluck dinner. But you can't help if you don't like ambrosia. There's so much for your mind to ponder as your face robotically smiles and nods through the chair's preamblic pleasantries. Until a phrase calls you back into the room. If Kirk Cameron's in it, I'm gonna watch it. <laughs> well, uh, Pastor, I, I do need to tell you there actually is something that <clears throat> I need to talk with you about. Okay, sure. You say, as your insides tighten into the same defensive clinch they assume during the slow click-clacking of a roller coaster's initial ascent. Well, I wanted to let you know that an individual called me last week and said that they're concerned with your preaching. They're unhappy with it. Okay, well, can you tell me what it is they don't like? I'm afraid I cannot. Can you tell me if it's about my theology or uh, my delivery or... My writing style? Yeah, I don't believe I can. Can you tell me who it is so that I, I could just speak with them directly? Sorry, confidentiality. Well, can you tell me absolutely nothing so that I can blow this completely out of proportion and worry about it all weekend and conclude that this individual hates everything about me, and while I'm at it, I'll go ahead and assume that he or she actually represents a larger group of people at the church who can't stand me, probably think that my nose is too big, and are secretly plotting my exit that could come into my life, much like you, unannounced at any time? Sure, that'd be fine. Great. 
You say, as your guest glides easily back to the office door, having sufficiently cursed your sacred space with vague, disembodied criticisms that could swirl in your psyche until your ministry is cold in the grave. An unholy spirit now blankets the room. It has no name. It has no face, and that is the horror of the feedback ghost. Dead-eyed, you stare at the wall, never having recognized that your deacon chair had left until they opened the door once more, just far enough to poke their head in and say, Oh, and pastor, don't worry. If I hear from anyone else, I'll be sure to let you know. (laughs) I'm Paul Burgess, and this is the Naked Preacher Podcast. right but it is halloween time so it's probably appropriate that today we discuss a topic that can strike fear into even the bravest preacher's heart feedback it comes in many forms hopefully most of the time it's handled thoughtfully delivered directly and encased in love by people aware of its power to encourage and fortify if done well or frighten and unsettle if not But ultimately, ministers have no control over the messenger. Feedback can come at any time from any source, which often means that pastors live in a defensive posture, ready to deflect critical arrows when they fly. Not because they're afraid of hearing ways that they can be more effective, but because they're afraid of hearing those they serve tell them they're not enough. That's why when I heard about the research of a pastor named Jason Boyd, I just knew that we had to talk. It's funny, I learned about Jason when laying the groundwork for this podcast. I knew that I wanted to name the show The Naked Preacher Podcast, but I wanted to be sure that that wasn't already taken. So I asked Almighty Google, and while I learned, thankfully, that there was no podcast yet by that name, there was a book published earlier just this year called The Naked Preacher Podcast by a Reverend Dr. Jason Boyd, who ministers in the United Kingdom. Turns out, when Jason was working on his doctoral degree, he decided to focus his research on preaching, specifically his preaching. He wanted to know what was happening to the people in the pews as he spoke. What were they seeing? What were they hearing? What was landing on their hearts? And what opportunities were being missed? In other words, he wanted feedback. So Jason organized 10 Sundays worth of sessions where church members or even visitors, strangers, could reflect on the sermon immediately after the service, talking to each other and to him about what they received, what worked well, and what didn't. Are you trembling in fear yet? (laughs) In a sense, Jason was naked in front of those he serves, vulnerable and open. And the experience affected him, his preaching, 
and his church in powerful ways. So I invited him on the show to tell me more about how. All right. Well, joining me on the podcast today uh, is, uh, it's truly a milestone. This is our first international guest, um, our first British accent. So this this uh, episode is all, all of a sudden going to be and sound so much uh, smarter than anything that I could ever say with my Southern accent. Uh, we are so excited to have uh, the pastor of Whitney Congregational Church with us today. Uh, that's in Oxfordshire, England. Uh, he recently earned a PhD, uh, and the work that got him there uh, is covered in his book called The Naked Preacher, Action Research, and the Practice of Preaching, published by uh, SCM Press. He is Reverend Dr. Jason Boyd. Jason, thank you for uh, joining us from across the pond today. Well, thank, thank you very much for having me. Uh, you'll be slightly assured that though I live here, I am a Canadian. Oh, all right. Oh, yes. Uh, <laughs> I, maybe the accent isn't quite as intelligent as uh, you might think, but <laughs> that's all right. It, it, <laughs> it still sounds a little brighter than what I'm working with, so that's okay. Um, well, I like to ask uh, all the pastors who come on uh, sort of a, a general question to begin with, which is um, how you started out in ministry. Why, of of all the the, the roads that you could have chosen, and why did you feel that God has led you down this one? I never imagined it being anything else, really, from the time I was, uh, from my earliest memories, uh, had uh, an experience uh, very early on in my life. I don't know how old I was, probably three, four years of age, and I remember uh, we had an Irish man as a pastor in, in our little Saskatchewan town in Canada, and he wore a dog collar, uh, and I, I asked my mother, I said, who's that guy with the white thing around his neck? And she said, he's the guy that tells people about God. And I just had that sense that that was what I was meant to do is to tell people about God. Wow. So that, in very kind of simple terms, that that's my memory of it. Um, and I've never thought of being anything else, really. Oh, that's awesome. That's awesome. Uh, so you, you're, you're living the dream then. Well, it's, it's not always a dream, but uh, yeah, it's, uh, I think ministries uh, can be quite challenging, particularly in, uh, you know, in the UK, it's quite challenging. People are, uh, the, the church is probably much less important, I think, in people's thinking and, hmm. and faith as well. It's, it's just not in the center of things. Right. So yeah, yeah there's challenges. Sure, absolutely, absolutely. Um, how did you end up? How did you end up from Saskatchewan and to in Canada to uh, over in the UK? Well, that's that's interesting. I I went to Bible College in Regina in Saskatchewan. With, it's now known as Ambrose Ambrose University uh, in Calgary, but at the time it was Canadian Bible College, a Christian and Missionary Alliance uh, Bible College, and I I went there. Uh, with all the answers and four years later I left with a lot of questions and mm. realized that I wasn't actually ready for ministry. Um, I, I needed to answer some questions for myself, keep on inquiring. And I had a chance to, to go to uh, the Nazarene Theological College which is based in Manchester and so I spent a year there doing uh, a Master of Arts in Theology and studying Christian Holiness um, I don't think I got any more answers, but perhaps uh, felt able to hold the questions, mm. uh, hold the doubts, and still have faith. 
That's beautiful. That's beautiful. And so, and, and that's where you did your PhD also, right? Nazarene Theological College? Or? No, no, no. Okay. That was, uh, that was way back in, uh, 1993. And oh. uh, then I started doing, I, I, I was going to do a doctor of ministry and realized that, uh, it, it wasn't quite the right fit for me. Mm -hmm. uh, so I left the course with a master of ministry and started a PhD and that was at the university of Chester. Uh, okay. And uh, that was with uh, Professor Elaine Graham. So, Great. yeah, awesome. and that was that was a much long, you know, 2015. So, yeah, so sure. many, many years later, I always ask questions. I'm always interested in thinking and particularly thinking about practice, you know, and and absolutely. Hmm. yeah, absolutely. It's a journey and, and we're supposed we're supposed to be uh, growing and, and, and always moving forward and good stewards of those questions. I think those questions are what help us get to that next point of who God is calling us to be. So yeah. that's outstanding. Um, so as you were uh, starting work in, in, on that uh, PhD program, uh, you were asked to name an area of your ministry that you would like to research and you chose preaching. Um, why, why was that the one that jumped out to you? Well, it struck me that uh, it was a niggling question. It was something that had always uh, been with me. Uh, as I was preaching um, and being involved in schools, because here in the UK, uh, clergy ministers are, are welcome to go in and to do um, religious education. I became very familiar with teachers uh, in the classroom. They're regularly being uh, assessed by their head teacher, the deputy head. There's inspections. Their, their practice is, and, uh, of teaching is being constantly monitored, interrogated, supported, and in lots of other professions as well, people uh, don't just do the job, they're continually learning, but they're also uh, being evaluated. And I just had the question, well, what on earth is going on when I preach a sermon? Hmm. Uh, you know, on the church door, um, you know, 80% of people would say, well, that was a nice sermon. Well, and that doesn't tell me very much. <laughs> And then uh, every so often you get the kind of the 10% that say that was absolutely terrible, didn't like it, really disagree with you. And then the other 10% uh, who just uh, really get a hold of whatever it is you're saying. Uh, and there was one experience I had in a previous church where about a dozen people stayed after the service and they just wanted to discuss the sermon. They wanted to discuss the passage. They were really switched on. And I thought, well, how, how do I make this happen? Hmm. And one of the things I wanted to know was, well, what am I learning? through this process of preaching. The, the greats like Fred Craddock uh, would tell you that preaching's about communication. You read, you read homiletics texts and they talk about preaching as communication, but the kind of communication I'm having with you or uh, with people in my life usually involves a level of listening. And I thought, well, how am I listening to the congregation? Mm. What, do I, what do I know? Do, are they learning anything? Am I talking over their heads? Um, and, and also, what am I learning through the process? Am I being effective? Is this education? Is this inspiration? A combination of both? I just wanted to know and to have some kind of rigorous way of looking at it um, and, and evaluating uh, my practice to see whether I could get better at what I am doing. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, we, we do think about preaching as communication, but communication is a two-way street and when it's one person standing up there talking for 20 minutes or whatever um yeah there's not much space for that person to listen and, and be receptive so the question i was going to ask you is i mean when was the last time you asked a question 
and you got an answer hmm. in, in the middle of your preaching. Um, and an answer that just wouldn't be something that would be blurted out, but that where you would engage with that and perhaps even be taken on the kind of the, the wave of that question. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, and I, th I think that's maybe easier in a context like I'm working in where the congregation is very small, um, you know, larger congregations, it, it's difficult. But I think there is that question of how, how do we engage with people? When we ask a question, are we really anticipating an answer? Um, am I asking the question just to set up my next point? Hmm. Or am I setting up a question that's going to entice people to say, I want to know more? So ending a sermon with a question that doesn't tie up all the, hmm. the loose ends, that actually makes people say, I need to discover more for hmm. myself. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Uh, it's like the, the opening of, of a question, the opening of a message and letting people leaving them with something so they can go and discover it for themselves. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's powerful. It scares me a little bit and I'll get to why it does uh, a little later. So we'll put a pin in that, but um, it, it's, all of that sort of hits on the type of research that you did for this project, which um, is a pretty, you know, unique type, I guess. Um, and typically when we think of research, we think of hard numbers and data and uh, focus groups and all that type of stuff. But uh, your research is, um, it's called action research. Mm -hmm. uh, can you give us a quick explanation for what action research is? That's very difficult to do because action <laughs> research is a, is a wide, uh, it's, it's a family of approaches. Mm -hmm. uh, but in essence, the clue is in the title. It's research in action. It's inquiry in the moment in what's happening. Mm -hmm. And so you have, but, and action research is about an ethos and orientation to living. So you, it's not about researching on people or for people. It's about researching with people. Mm. So the assumption in action research is that uh, every every human being that comes around the table, uh, whatever their intellectual ability or otherwise, has something to bring. There is there is wisdom. There is knowledge. There's a an, an already knowing that we simply have to uh, facilitate. Yeah. And so it may be that we are looking at our an organization and saying, what's going well here? What um what's working? What's not working so well? But the assumption is that it's not just the researcher. It's not just me asking the question. It's everyone owning the question. It belongs to them. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's messy and it's difficult because you've got all this question of, you know, bias and so on. But that's actually what life is like. We are full of biases. We're full of uh, our own perspectives. Um, yeah. So, so that in, in essence, action research is looking at uh, everyday ordinary experiences and saying, you know, how can we, how can we improve our experiences here? How can uh, human life flourish in our own communities? Yeah, I, I think you, you nailed uh, what I was thinking as you were talking about it was just that word messy. It, it seems it's messier, um, but I think the trade-off is that it's more authentic. It's more organic. It, it is from um, among the people and uh, you, you 
you mentioned three C's uh, in your book to help describe action research, uh, collaboration, co-learning, and change. Yes. Uh, well, as part of uh, your action research, yours, uh, your collaboration, your co-learning, and uh, your change was largely drawn from 10 opportunities that people in your congregation had to process uh, and comment on your sermons, how the sermons affected them, what worked in those sermons, what, mm. what didn't work in those sermons, the, the life that they were bringing to those mm. sermons. Um, and you called those gatherings word cafes. And yes. so again, you had like 10 of those that were part of your research. Can you sort of describe what a word cafe experience looks like? What, what did people encounter when they stepped into one of those? Well, can I take you a step back? Uh, because the, the way that word, word cafe emerged. Mm -hmm. So it all began by me having my question. Uh, in a congregational setting, you, you, we have something called the church meeting. So the, the people who are members, there's no hierarchical structure except that which is in the local church. Mm -hmm. So at a church meeting, I, I brought the question, you know, what happens when I preach a sermon? And I just said, are you interested in this question? And there was a real buzz about uh, that meeting, and they said, yes, we are. So then we had a series of uh, um, planning meetings, co-planning meetings. So they were involved in the development, the asking of the question, does preaching matter? How are we going to research it? What were they willing to do and give in terms of their own time? So there was that ownership of the question itself. Mm -hmm. And then uh, what I had to do was I had to find a way to facilitate the conversations so what I did was I actually um, wrote some people, you know, I read uh, ha the handbook on action research and I wrote Peter Reason, who's an expert in this field. And he connected me with one chap who happens to live only a mile away. And, <laughs> um, and another chap who eventually became my external examiner from, from Dublin. But the point was, is that I <clears throat> was making connections and I was looking for people to teach me. So it's not about having all the ready-made solutions at hand. You need to have an inquiring mind and say, now, how can I tackle this when you come up against a problem to be willing to, 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 to chew it over with other people and to find experts? So I found um, this uh, chap named Dave Adams, and he, he and I met, and I told him what I was trying to do, and he suggested something called World Cafe. So that's, that was developed in the States by Winita Brown and David Isaacs, and you can buy the book on uh, relatively cheaply. <clears throat> and the whole idea is that people open up and have conversations over food and drink. Um, and the discovery of World Cafe was kind of serendipity in itself for them. And what they do is they invite you to adapt it. And so what we did was we thought, well, this is one way where we can begin to have the conversations. And uh, we're looking at the, the, the preaching, so let's call it Word Cafe. So it's, it's not terribly genius, um, but, it, but it worked. It worked as a way of uh, setting up a communicative space where we began to have a, 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 a venue for people to have conversations. And people do tend to let down the barriers. They tend to um, be able to express themselves more clearly when they've got a mm. cup of coffee in their hand and yeah. have something to eat. Yeah. So the, the, the word cafe itself worked like this, following uh, an ordinary service, uh, we met uh, in, a, in a, a space which we tried to make look like a cafe, with, uh, so people sat in groups of four around small tables, the tables had tablecloths on them with coloured pens, um, 
And the question that we asked was, uh, what happened to you as you listened to the sermon today? That, that central question was on display on cards and also uh, it was projected onto a screen. There were sub-questions, what did you think? What did you feel? Um, what uh, did you bring from last week to the sermon? Uh, did it prompt anything from your past life? What kept your attention? What lost your attention? These were just some of the questions that were meant to prompt the discussion. So people began by eating, uh, you know, uh, a very light lunch together. So the first session was quite uh, a little bit longer than the second two rounds. So about 20 to 25 minutes, people would have a conversation. They were encouraged to write, doodle, draw, and just as they had conversations to put things down what, uh, around those questions. And then uh, after that first round, one person would stay on each table as the host to that conversation. The other three people would then move to different tables and the host would introduce the conversation that had taken place to the, to the new, newly gathered group. They would then have their own conversation. And the idea was that you got cross-pollination of ideas, deepening of themes, questions that probed further and further. So we had three of those rounds, then concluded by a plenary. Now, I was in the room, but I didn't participate in any of the discussions but the congregation were quite keen for me to engage with them in some kind of conversation. So when the plenary happened, uh, that was when they got to kind of say, these were the themes we found, this is what we were thinking, what do you think, Jason? And so we were able then to have more of a conversation. So th that was the way that we did it. Um, and to be able to, to um, get this data in, into some kind of form where I could reflect on it, all the tablecloths were photographed, I then transcribed all of the conversations, including the doodles and the drawings onto uh, A4 sheets. And then I put them on A3 sheets, so quite large paper in around uh, the, the different themes. So I could see how the conversations were happening around themes, as well as which tables they were taking place at. It was all anonymous, so people wrote uh, on the tablecloths. I did recognize writing, but it didn't. It didn't particularly influence me and sure. I just just let it happen. Then as part of this, the service was video recorded. Uh, so in the following week, as soon as the word cafe had happened, uh, I would write in my uh, journal, uh, how, did, how, how did I prepare the sermon? How did I think the preaching event went? What were some of the things that were raised in the word cafe? And then I would watch the the service myself so i had to watch myself listen to myself be critical of myself and then write a response to that so a response to having seen it then what i did was i brought together the 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 conversations at the word cafe with my own reflections and then this was brought into conversation with my supervisors and some uh, congregational colleagues that i met from time to time so it, it wasn't just a kind of an ad hoc what do people happen to think it was quite a rigorous a rigorous process right and behind me uh, you can see on the top shelf of my uh, study all of those uh, table boxes uh -huh. contain tablecloths with the coffee the tea and all the food stains <laughs> so it was real it was real life it was yeah. real life yeah um so i I, I, that's such a an, an outstanding process i've been a part of a world cafe before and and it really was a, a great opportunity for um 
you know, to, to get that conversation going. I think there's something biblical about that. I mean, you know, Jesus, the the last supper, you know, is, is bread and and wine and, and uh, so much change and conversation happens around food in scripture. Um, So I'm trying to think about it in translating that into an American context. And, and I'm worried about how it works for two reasons. One, you said light lunch. Um, we don't really do light lunches around here. We, we, no. like, we, we like to do a lot of food after church, go suck up on a buffet, as, uh, as um, my father-in-law likes, likes to say. So uh, load our plates up. So that would be the, the, the first hurdle because uh, we like to eat. But uh, secondly, um, you know, in in the South where I'm from, as again, you can tell from my accent, we, we like to be super polite. And so we would never offer critical feedback to a preacher's face. You know, we would shake his or her hand at the, the end of the service and say, nice job, that blessed me preacher or whatever. And then just talk about everything that he or she did wrong uh, at lunch while sucking up on the buffet, <laughs> uh, like a normal person. Yeah. So um, what, what was it like receiving um, such direct feedback about your messages, um, w- whether it was overhearing a conversation or, you know, was, was there that ever a fearful thing for you, just being in such close proximity to folks who were, you know, speaking about something that you had been a part of? It was it was terrifying for them for them as well as for me. Hmm. Um, I think what what we had to do is we had to develop trust. There had to be a, a demonstration that what they said actually made a difference to what I was to what I was doing. So to demonstrate that I was my practice was at least being challenged by if if not changed by the, the feedback, and it really was about building trust because a lot of people in the UK setting um, some of them said well I haven't got anything to say I haven't got anything to contribute we had uh, one person who had profound special needs and didn't think they had anything to give Hmm. and they were a bit reluctant to take part Uh, but by the end they actually were a host and they were transcribing or you know putting down thoughts from the 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 conversations and they were playing host and it was just wonderful i think i think this whole process is about um i am not prescribing uh the mcdonald's hamburger this is how you do it a b e d and this equals the the formula this is not anything to do with church growth it's not to do with you know i'm not saying that you should do it this way what this what my research is about is to demonstrate a way of being Mm-hmm. It's about a way of being with people. It's about people discovering that actually the preacher is, um, they know me. Um, and the biggest change that's happened is that when I do ask a question, I, I can expect an answer. You know, people wow. will come back to me. They will say things. Um, sometimes it's not comfortable. Sometimes it throws me off course, but that's okay. Um, so I think it is about building those relationships and trying to deepen the honesty, because obviously having the minister or the pastor or the preacher for a roast lunch, you know, talking about them afterwards, it's not helping the people who are talking. Absolutely. And it's certainly not helping the preacher. Yeah. Um, and it just perpetuates a kind of, it's almost like the, the preacher is in, a, in an echo chamber and is just hearing positive feedback and they have no way of knowing. You know, a comedian wouldn't do that, you know. 
if, 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 a, if, if somebody's performing in front of an audience, they will get pretty direct feedback. I think even in the States from the audience, mm-hmm. uh, you know, people express displeasure, they'll laugh, they'll say, oh, that was rubbish, get off the stage. You know, so why is it that we accord preachers with some kind of special status? I think there, there, there's a real issue there yeah. where preachers are just doing, they think that they're preaching well and they may actually not have any idea whatsoever uh what they look like uh how they're being received what people are thinking about them Mm. amen yeah i think you're exactly right um what were some of the observations that you received do it do any stick out to you over those 10 events well the i mean part of it is you, you referred to the food thing so one of the things that, that stood out for me is the story of the Emmaus Road, and I write about that quite extensively in, in, in the book. And it's how Jesus comes alongside uh, these two uh, people, uh, one named uh, Cleopas. And, you know, I imagine that they're both men. Some people think that uh, one of them is a woman, but because they don't get it, I, I'm sure they're men. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so, the, you know, they're on this, they're on this journey there's somebody who appears and they don't recognize him for whatever reason. He's the stranger. And what do they do? They welcome him. For me, part of this process was welcoming the stranger. It was welcoming the unknown, welcoming the possible challenge. Um, these two people are um, discombobulated, to use an American word. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They, just, they just don't get it. Their whole world has been turned upside down in Lucan terms. They're moving away from Jerusalem where all the action of God is, is happening. Hmm. And they're, they're at a complete loss. And Jesus comes along and he doesn't say, this is, the, this is who I am. This is what you need to believe. Instead, he asks them, you know, why do you look so sad? What are you talking about on the way? Hmm. Uh, and he asks, the, and then when they say, well, don't you know? And he says, what things? He yeah. just keeps asking questions. And then they tell him, they pour out their hearts to him the best that they know how. And Jesus was a prophet mighty in deed and word. And that's another connection with this action research Mm. that Jesus, this whole journey is about putting one foot in front of the other. It's the deed, word, deed, word. And he then tell, he explains the scriptures, but I think that the disciples still don't get it. And it's not until they invite him. So they invite the stranger, the unknown one into their house. And it's in the breaking of the bread in the, in communion, in Eucharist, whatever it is you call it, whatever tradition you're from, it's in that moment when the crumbs are scattered everywhere that they see mm-hmm. and their eyes are open. And the moment they want to capture him like that, he disappears yeah. and he's gone. And I think for me, it's the whole process is about having my eyes opened to the presence of Jesus in the most unlikely places. And to be a good action researcher is to come alongside people and ask good questions and keep mm. listening to stories and then give your input and your wisdom. But there always comes that moment when you need to sit down, eat, and share something of God. Mm. Um, so that, you know, the insight for me was, you know, I, I soon learned that, I, I, you know, I, I didn't use preaching notes. Um, I prepared a full manuscript and I thought that by leaving those notes to the side and preaching directly, therefore you know i closed the communication gap and i i discovered very soon that that hadn't happened and the feedback i got from word cafe was uh you know we like the content of your sermon but 
the fact that you didn't look at us distracted us. Um, now, my wife had said something about that to me, but of course, uh, I didn't listen. I <laughs> explained it away. Um, and somebody in the co-planning meeting had also made reference to this, but I thought that they were talking about my preaching prior uh, when I, you know, prior to the moment when I put the, the sermon notes to the side. And what had happened was I was so blinkered by my assumptions that I couldn't learn. And it wasn't until I entered into this word cafe process that I was unsettled enough that I had to look this uh, practice in the eye, as it were. Mm -hmm, and I, mm -hmm. but I, I wasn't looking at my congregation and I wondered why. Yeah, yeah. What, what do you do with your eyes now? Well, one of the interventions was that I, um, I actually went, before the service, I usually sit, uh, sit for a while. And then I look at everybody in the room uh, because my biggest terror is that people will discover uh, that there's a gap between what I say and what I do. Hmm. And the reality is, is that there is a gap between what I say and what I do. Sure. And actually I need to accept it and, the, and the, the congregation have to accept it. And that part of it is about preaching. And this is the word of God is something we're gathered around we're all being ch challenged and changed by it at all time. It's coming to the place where you say, well, that, you know, this week I had a church meeting. I didn't handle myself very well. Hmm. And for me to be able to, to say I didn't handle myself, to approach the people that may have been hurt and say, I'm sorry, I didn't get that right. Hmm. And I, I need to change. So life, I suppose there, there, there is this dream that came to help me to understand it. And it's a typical dream, uh, I'm sure. Freudians will have a, would have a great time analyzing, <laughs> but it's the birth it's the birthday party, um, uh, I, and it's a recurring dream. And I walk into a room, my grandparents, my minister, the same minister with the dog collar that I you know, right, was referring right. to earlier. In this dream, the all these really important people are there. It's my birthday, and I walk into the room, and suddenly I realize I haven't got any clothes on. Do we but we call that the birthday suit. Do you have that saying? Yeah, yeah, yes, yeah. yeah birthday suit. And I was, I was in my birthday suit, but nobody yes. seemed to notice. Nobody seemed to notice. Hmm. So I was in a double bind because I knew I was naked. They didn't seem to know I was naked. If I left the room to make myself comfortable to go get some clothes on and came back to the room, they might say, well, why did you leave the room? And then I would have to say, oh, I was naked. But then what if I stayed in the room and uh, everybody knows I'm naked but they're all pretending that they don't notice. Yeah. And to me, that is what church life is like. Yeah. Preachers are pretending they're not naked. Congregations are pretending they're not naked. Nobody's talking about our nakedness. Mm. And nakedness doesn't mean anything goes. What it means is that we have to be, in some way, truer to ourselves. I don't want to talk about being true to yourself because I don't know if we ever arrive at being true to ourselves but there's a, 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 a deepening of a, our awareness mm -hmm. that I am created by God and I am a much loved sinner, mm. full stop. And so the preaching event is about engaging with that yeah. and preaching with a sense of humility. It's not about saying, you know, this is what happened. Uh, you know, I, I looked at a woman lustfully when I was in the supermarket the other day. It's not, not saying that from the pulpit, but it's, but when we're preaching about these weighty topics, like 
you know, in Mark's gospel, and we're dealing with the hard words of Jesus about relationships, divorce, sex, power, all those sorts of things. I need to be preaching from inside of that. Mm. I am a participant in this. Mm. This sermon is for me before it's for anyone else. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, and hence the title of your book, right? The yeah. Naked Preacher. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I love it. Um, so it, I want to go back real quick to you. You were talking about your your process for preaching and how you started out uh, as a manuscript preacher and uh then you you still typed the manuscript but sort of left it left your notes aside so that um in theory you could be more engaged with the congregation yeah. and and even then you realized that you your eyes were elsewhere um and i did i want to you know follow through with my promise earlier from the podcast and getting back to what what terrified me because that the idea of of leaving notes behind is is certainly i'm a manuscript preacher and i'm i go through i go throughout it several times during the week so that i'm not standing up there reading um but it is it's a comfort blanket to have up there and the idea of uh, while I love and am in in one way exhilarated by the idea of engaging uh, the congregation with questions that could lead to unknown roads, um, what's that going to mean for that really cool illustration that I you know that I wrote down, Jason, or, or that really cool turn of phrase you know that's coming in the third point or whatever? So, just any thoughts you have on on what that process was like inside you? Well, first of all, I didn't, I pre, I'm glad that I preached from manuscripts for as long as I did. Mm -hmm. So it, it was 15 years probably or, or so, and I wrote from full manuscript. And I think that having a full manuscript is good. I still write a full manuscript because then you've thought it through. Mm -hmm. You know, preachers that just get up and say, I'm going to just <laughs> preach whatever the spirit lays on my heart. I think, oh, come on, give me grace. Yeah. You know, you need to think things through. There is an eloquence to writing but we need to be writing uh, orally. And by that, I mean to, to, to write in a way that we would speak. So I'm uh, less tidy uh, in, in terms of, um, I'm not writing an academic essay. Yeah. I'm, writing, I'm writing to be heard. And does, would this sound natural if I was having a phone conversation? I don't think anyone should leave a manuscript till they're ready. Um, and for me, uh, if I'm really tired, I have to use my manuscript you know, if, if, if my mind just doesn't hold it all. But I also need to have the confidence that I've lived with this passage, that I've really thought it through. And if there's that special illustration that just gets left out, so be it. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. It, what matters is that I am speaking and clearly speaking from the heart and that this has affected me in some way deeply. So, and I think there is, there is terror in that. Now, there was an experience I had as I was moving towards this, leaving the manuscript aside, uh, aside and I refer to it in the book. Um, and I preached, uh, I fully prepared the manuscript, and I preached the sermon, and I made a sexist joke. And I got the laugh that I wanted, and probably no one else thought about it, but I thought, my goodness, why did I say that? That was awful. I shouldn't have said that. So instead of what I did was I, I did single loop learning. I thought that was bad. So manuscript will keep me safe. Right. And I'll use the manuscript to keep me from saying naughty things or things that I haven't thought through. 
instead of doing the second loop learning, which is to go a little bit deeper and say, what needs to change about, you know, what needs to change about me? And third loop, loop learning, which is me living in the moment and, and being respectful to, to women mm. at all times. Yeah. You know, it's not that there is a, an appropriate place to tell a sexist joke. <laughs> right. You know what yeah. I mean? So yeah. that, for me, um, it, it's about going that little bit deeper Mm-hmm. And leaving the manuscript behind is absolutely terrifying. You need to have a group of people around you that are going to be supporting you and, and helping you in that. But I don't see it as an ideal. I don't, I don't trumpet that. I just think that I come to the point in my ministry, mm-hmm. I'm 47 now, you know, life moves on and we, we change yeah. And, yeah. and we just have to embrace that. But I, yeah. I don't think the, the manuscript in itself is an issue. It's about how deep is the message in your heart, in your yeah. life? How embedded is it? And are you, is the manuscript getting between you and communicating? And one of the things I realized, if I went into a school to take an, a religious assembly for 14-year-olds, there was no way in the world that <laughs> I would have even, even a little scrap of paper like this. Right. I wouldn't have anything. I wouldn't even have a note on my hand because mm. that's like saying, shoot me across yeah. my forehead. There's no way I would do that. So why, why do I treat my congregation any differently? You know, they want to hear something and they want to hear it directly. Yeah. Yeah. That's a very, that's a very graceful way of, of putting that. I, I, I appreciate that um, because that make me feel like I've got to remain in the manuscript tomorrow, but it helps me to reflect on, you know, what does that manuscript represent and why, why are, why, do you feel tied to it as you do and, and engage some of that, you know, second and, and third loop learning and um, see where it leads, you know, so maybe by the time I'm 47, I'll, yeah. I might and, and, and the thing is, is, is that I think you just need to think, you know, when you're telling a story to your children or, you know, it's the context in which we do things. And I came from a very conservative fundamentalist background. And so for me, preaching was, I was preaching the, the very word of God, you know, and so I, not that I'm not preaching the word of God, but for me, it was, you had to cross every T and dot every I, and it had to be theologically sound. And if I got it wrong, then I was going to be held accountable before God. So some of it was actually just, I was frightened of saying the wrong Mm -hmm. thing. Yeah, absolutely. Rather than simply to communicate and say, actually, the the word of God is a dynamic. It's Mm -hmm. not just something on a page. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And when you're standing up there as a quote, naked person aware of your nakedness, you are in a sense free to, you know, speak more authentically, knowing that some of those things will not be the absolute most theologically accurate or, or whatever else, but the congregation knows that as well. They're under no delusion that you are a, a perfect person up there. Um, so I, I, I can only imagine what this whole process has done for your congregation, uh, for your, your level of connection to them. You talk about it being a trust-building process, um, but action research, as we have said, is about collaboration and co-learning leading to change together. So um, what, what do you think the whole process of, of the Word Cafes and this whole project uh, has done for your connection to your congregation and your congregation's connection uh, to itself? Well, th- that's a question I'm wrestling with a lot at the moment because the, the research was done. Action research is never finished. Sure. But the, the formal bit's done. The book's been published. 
and I ask myself, so what? <laughs> now what? Yeah, I've been in the I've been with my current congregation for ten years. Uh, you know, through death and other issues, there has been a decline. You know, this is not a victory. This is not a victory parade. Uh, I, you know, I'm a I'm I'm a minister of a very small congregation in 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 Oxfordshire, um, but the call is not to be the minister of a, a, a big church. It's hmm. to be faithful to where God has called me to be, yes. and and to actually say you know so things have changed there is a, a, a spirit of openness where people will say things that they didn't say before but there's still more to be done you know in 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 the recent few weeks i've i've had a lot of confronting to do both within myself and in the congregation things you know where where there is this kind of exhaustion that's setting in uh, in so i think it, take take this research in into its context it's not um a panacea to make your church the most wonderful place ever mm -hmm. or for, to make you the finished product as a pastor or minister or preacher. It's about this ongoing sense of inquiry. Where is God in all of this? Where is the grace of Christ in all of this? And actually going back to that Emmaus Road, where is the brokenness in all of this? You know, is the bread is broken and scattered and sometimes there has to be the scattering and, and 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 the crumbs everywhere and hmm. the mess yeah um but do we simply then uh you know when things aren't going well do we just move on then to another situation i don't think so there, yeah. there's that sense of where is god calling me to be what is the call upward in in the kind of um that kind of church success model of right. thing or is the call downward you know, the first will be last and the last will be first. Mm -hmm. mm. <laughs> I don't know if that's what you wanted to hear, but. Um... Well, no, it's, 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 it's honest. And um, I think it's what I, I need to hear. Um, so as sort of a closing, I like to uh, ask each guest uh, three uh, questions that sort of invite you into a little deeper vulnerability and uh, to share a little bit more of yourself. We call it the skin invitation. And uh, so if, if you don't mind, I'd like to ask you just a, a couple questions now. Um, this this first, first one might be really hard for you because I'm sure you've never made one, but what is one mistake you've made in ministry? Being God. Wow. Being God. And I think um, ministry, being a pastor, those moments when I've been alongside somebody who's died and I can't quite figure out why. Hmm. When, um, when, when the church is facing problems and they're, and, and you can't see the way ahead and you think I've got to do something, I've got to change this, I've got to make it happen. And I'm just trying to be God. And actually the invitation is for us to say, let God be God. Mm. and let me love God as he loves me mm. and and you know love of God for Jesus meant the cross yeah you know and if we look at Christ crucified there was no glory in it he could have been one of thousands of uh, crucifixions lining the roads of uh, of uh, the Roman Empire he was just one among many yeah. and there was no glory in it and sometimes I forget that yeah to be obedient to Christ is to say not my will but yours be done yeah. and that's that's hard yeah mm. that's very hard amen um 
what about uh, a fear that you have? What's one of your fears in ministry? Just failure, <laughs> failure, full stop, you know? <laughs> and what is, what is failure? It's that sense of uh, what, what, what do people think of me? Yeah. What, what do I think of myself? Failure is failure um, when, you know, that church family leaves and goes to the, to, to, to the, to the church that's got a little bit more going on, you know, is that failure? Yeah. But that's, that's, that's what I wrestle with is how to be, you know, how do I accept failure? Um, yeah. And I, I heard you talking on one of your podcasts about shame. Um, and there's a chap here in, in the UK, Stephen Patterson, Patterson who talks about um, uh, failure. You know, it was from Peter's failure. Um, you remember he's, he looks at, Je- you know, Jesus looks at him and they, their eyes connect mm. and he weeps. And from that place of complete failure, um, Peter is remade, whereas Judas, who somehow has to make it, uh, he has to, to make it up somehow and he makes it up with his life. Yeah. And it isn't that he couldn't be forgiven. So it's a choice about what do we do with our failure, what yeah. do we do with our shame? Um, what do we do with that stripping down so the young man perhaps John Mark in, in, in Mark's gospel who uh, runs away and, and, the, and, and, and his, you know, whatever he was wearing was pulled off of him and he was made naked, you know, and I feel quite naked. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I certainly know that um, actually the, I need to bring my failures uh, to Jesus and to God and actually bring them to him because actually God is God. And I am who I am. Yeah. And that's all I need mm. is mm. to know that he's it. He's, he's got it. <laughs> that's right. Amen. Um, okay. Well, last one. What is one thing that you just completely rock in ministry? One thing that you just are, are gifted at and you're proud of it. Well, this is, this is uh, just even saying completely rock just makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> just the, the, this an Americanism. Like, oh, no. Um, I'm thinking, well, what? You know, and I'm not sure. Um, you know, I, I, I think I'm a good preacher. That's what people say. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's maybe not being polished, but just being able to communicate with people. Uh, yeah. But I think if, if, if I was looking at what the places where I feel uh, I thrive, it's often, it's often the places that I find difficult to be. But, you know, being with people while they're dying. Mm. Um, and I remember two particular instances, uh, you know, where I was with somebody and they were in heart failure and they threw up all over me and I had to, you know, I was there, took my jacket off and had to clean them up and, and be with the family. Um, that's, that's the kind of stuff that, um, nobody's ever going to see. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I suppose in one way it doesn't actually matter, but that's a moment where I think, this is this is where God is. This is where Jesus wants me to be. Absolutely. So I don't know if I rock, but <laughs> there there are places where I just where I just know and 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 just being aware that God yeah. God is God. God is God. Yeah. And, and I I I'm called to love Him and to trust Him. Yeah. And that sounds easy, but it's <laughs> jolly hard. Right. Absolutely. Well. My friend, uh, I, after just having talked to you for, for this little bit of time, I, I can say there are plenty of things that I know you rock in, in your ministry. And I know that things uh, in, in the UK, spiritually speaking, as, as you mentioned, are in a, a bit of a trying time. Um, 
but I think that with with pastors like you, you know, uh, there there has to be just uh, authentic faith that is growing in people's hearts, and it might not be on wide you know, national scales where it's just all these, these waves being swept. But, but I have to think that, that what you're doing, standing in front of your people and not being God, being Jason Boyd, uh, who is loving God with everything he has, that, that is doing powerful things in hearts, my friend. And, and I'm so grateful that, that you're there and that you could, uh, share your story and that you've been vulnerable in the ways that you have, because I think our church that we share together is, is stronger because of it. Thank you very much for inviting me. Absolutely. Absolutely. God bless. You too. Bye. There you go. The man who literally wrote the book on being a naked preacher, Jason Boyd. So grateful that he could join us today to share about his experience and, um, hopefully encourage us uh, to go out and be the authentic people we are from behind the pulpit, to look folks in the eyes uh, and live out of that truth. Like Jason said, I am created by God and I am a much-loved sinner, full stop. You can preach from that. You can receive feedback from that because there's nothing to be scared of. Nothing that you do well, nothing that you do poorly can ever change that blessed good news. And so, chaps, peace be with y'all until we meet again.